ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Sandy Cheng. Sandy's a producer, actor, writer, podcaster, and all-around storyteller who strives to champion marginalized voices. She strongly believes that art is meant to challenge the status quo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Brands want to connect with young audiences and authenticity is critical. User-generated content is powerful and young creators are savvy about the power of their voice and the value of their contribution. And all of these things come together in a swirl that can be challenging for a brand to navigate, let alone harness. Given that we've bought into the premise that it's important for young creative voices to have a seat at the table and that diversity makes brands stronger, how should or can agencies and brands go about inspiring young creators to team with them while still retaining their own voice and authenticity? That's a really great question. There's so many layers to this, right? Obviously, there are some who are ready to to rock with all of these young creators and let them have free reign to create, right? But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of brands and agencies at this moment are really afraid and they're afraid of failure. And that's the beautiful thing about young creators is that they're not afraid of failure. They're just like, it's all about failing upwards. And I think that's what a lot of brands and agencies should start to get comfortable with failing upwards and not being afraid to take those risks, which sounds like a lot of the cliche things that you hear about social media anyway. (laughs) But for some reason, every time a new generation of creators come up, this becomes the conversation again of don't be afraid to fail, take risks. I hate to be this sort of negative Nelly, but brands can really make mistakes. Juneteenth stuff, you know, they oh can my get gosh. it right, right? Okay, so yes, horrible. So, okay, so it's horrible, and they don't want to make that mistake. So, is yeah. that because they is that because they actually didn't surrender to other people and voices, and they were trying too hard to manage it and weren't listening? What what? Because failure, you can get dragged all over every social platform of your creation. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm on I'm on Twitter and it is a scary place where when you get canceled. But I think the reason why there are those Juneteenth brand snafus, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, and also the one that I will always remember is the Pepsi commercial. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> that was terrible. Yeah. And I, you know, I wasn't in the room when these decisions were made, but I can only assume after being in agency and corporate world for quite some time now that there aren't enough uh, diverse voices in the room. And that continues to be an issue that we're grappling with. And the only way to achieve true equity and inclusion is to hire at the top level so that the top has those diverse perspectives or those insights before that mistake were to happen. Like, hey, maybe let's not, let's rethink this Juneteenth campaign for just one second. Because I can tell you there have been so many times when I've been in a room where people with all good intentions 
uh, suggest a campaign mm-hmm. with the intention of like, this will be inclusive and this will show that we're anti-racist or something like that. And then it actually harms more people of color than it does any good. I'm going to jump in here. When you're in that room, is part of the problem that you can't speak up or that if you do speak up, they don't listen? I think it's a bit of both, but ever, I've always been kind of, I mean, you don't seem like a retiring (laughs) flower. Let's just, I've always been the person to be like, actually, let's take a beat and think about what we're actually saying. So I, I've tend to become my brand so okay. to speak, is now, you know, the person that will call out and will be like, Hey, let's, let's take a moment and think about like, what exactly is our intention here? Is it to appear more inclusive or are we actually doing something to change policy or to, generate some sort of action to our audience. Are we under the hood? What we're saying we are on the surface, right? If we go back to where we started, right, we were talking about young creators and brands being fearful and not worrying about failing and then they can fail, but is the premise that young creators, because Gen Z is the most diverse generation there is thus far, are they more likely to be sensitive to these issues and thus not run afoul of them? Is that kind of a premise then? I think so. And of course, Gen Z is not a monolith, but for the most part, because Gen Z grew up with social media, millennials had the live journal, MySpace era, where slowly we got into social media, but we didn't start out with it. Right. Gen Z from the get-go, they were online and they were given, for better or for worse, all of this information and they were able to communicate and start dialogue and see reactions in real time, especially Mm. now with TikTok. So I do think Gen Z tends to be much more aware and much more sensitive and also bolder in a lot of what they want to say, which I think is wonderful Mm. because for the longest time and speaking as a millennial, Uh for the longest time, I do feel like millennials fell into the anxiety of, of being in corporate or being at your first job with a lot of financial upheaval and a lot of global crises and being afraid to lose our job. So that limited us of of speaking out more because we were afraid. I do think Gen Z is just like, you know what? We've seen all of these generations fail to speak up. So now it's my turn to speak up and I'm willing to do it and go above and beyond for it. Right. One of the things that's interesting, you mentioned Gen Z isn't a monolith. And I think that nothing, no, no group is monolithic. And yet when let's say we have to your point earlier about recruiting at the top, hiring diversity for the top, does that put, you know, does that person become the voice of that, that diversity, that diverse group? And is that putting a lot on them as an individual? I mean, I would hope that it's not just a token hire and it is inclusion is throughout the corporation. I truly believe that the onus of representation doesn't fall on one person. Right. But I think that is that is the hurdle that we're trying to move over right now. I think that just actually shows the lack of representation that we have right now, because if there were more diverse voices, if we actually did make an effort to 
bring inclusion at every level, then I think that that burden, so to speak, and that emotional labor would be lessened and it wouldn't just fall on this one person of just like, oh, because you're a woman of color or because you're a person of color, then you have to tell us what to do or like you have to represent us, the community. You, you have to be at the you have to be the moral guide here because right, we, exactly. we don't know. Okay. So dragging, dragging my conversation back to, back to young (laughs) creatives, we see brands like Duolingo do really well with staff people who take off on social media, but having staff speak on social media can feel dicey for a brand. What kind of guardrails, if any, should they put in place? How should that be structured? Oh, this is so challenging for every social media marketer or anyone who's in the social media field right now, because it's it's difficult, right? Because you also don't want to force your staff to be on camera. Well, that was a follow-on question. I was thinking, is an employee on social media at work or on, on their own? A lot of the times... You know, I think social media can only succeed if everyone has buy-in, but that's difficult too, because like I was saying, you don't want to force anyone who doesn't want to be on camera to be on camera. And also that is, you know, putting themselves, you put them in a very vulnerable position as well. So I do think that you can tell when someone doesn't want to be there either. Mm. So it's important to build a social team that is very enthusiastic and truly believes in the creator process and isn't afraid of failure and just has fun with it because only then can your authentic voice really come through and shine through very similar to how Duolingo does it because it's not just the one social media manager. She is, you know, working with, with her team as well. And she's the one that's directing it. And she's not even the person in the suit in the owl suit. Right. An anonymous coworker. At right. least that's what I've come to believe. But because there has been buy-in from the beginning and from leadership of just like, yeah, just take it and run with it. This unhinged owl and let's do right. it. And let's have seen- fun. Exactly. Yeah. So the employees need to have, they need to be bought into it in an authentic way. They shouldn't feel forced. But to your point, these are often people in their first job. If I'm a marketer at a brand and I have young first job employees. And I'd love to get them doing the social media thing and really embracing it. How should I go about it? You know, how should I give them the opportunity to back out in a way that they believe it, but also make it clear that as long as they understand the brand voice, you know, go forth. And how should that partnership between me as the company and the manager, how does that develop? Well, I can't speak for everyone. So if anyone from Harvard Business Review or something is listening to this, this isn't science or anything. But I have learned so much from bad managers throughout Mm -hmm. my career. Mm -hmm. And now my managerial style is of all the things of like, you know what, I wish when I was 21, someone said this to me instead of this. What are some of those nuggets? What are some of those things? I think a lot of it honestly has to do with empathy. There was just more, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps type of mentality. And just, this is just the hard work you have to suffer through or endure. And that was the messaging of at least my career trajectory. And I felt like I'm just starting out. I wish I had more support and I wish I could have more one-on-ones rather than like 
once a month, one-on-ones. So now I make an effort to do one-on-ones with everyone I manage, no matter where they are in their career and just take stock of what are your short-term goals? What are your long-term goals and what are your personal goals? Because while we always talk about work-life balance, unfortunately work takes up so much of our lives that inevitably something in your personal life will bleed through into work. That's just Mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that when people are underperforming or, you know, there's just like, Hey, like, I feel like you're not understanding the assignment, or I just feel like there's some misalignment more often than not. It's because of something going on personally. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying to trauma dump to your manager or anything like that. But as a manager, I do make an effort to, to listen and be empathetic and be supportive and be like, Hey, if this is going on in your personal life, what could I do to take, take it off your plate? Or what could I do to support you? And in any capacity. And that's something that I wish that my previous managers, when I was starting out, uh, had me do instead of, I will always remember (laughs) not naming anyone or any brand that I had a manager that would be so upset at me and my team that they would pull us into a glass conference room and publicly shame us Uh and be like, and do a working session if they were unhappy with something that we had done. And I really don't believe in that mentality. Shame is a a very powerful and destructive force. One of the things people talk about social media, they talk about young creators, we've talked about bringing diversity of opinions, that this is a very diverse, although not monolithic generation. But you know, if people are lucky, they're going to age. Aging might stink, but it beats the alternative, (laughs) right? So bottom line, people get older. Do people age out of being relevant? I don't think so. I I think that's like almost... I don't, I don't know how, how deep we want to get into it. I almost think that's part of the patriarchy of like, oh, well, once you turn 30 as a woman, for example, once you turn 30, you basically expired as a human being. And I think that's true with like, quote unquote, aging out of relevance. I strongly believe in lifelong learning. Carol Dweck has some great studies and research on it. And I'm a proponent of that as well. I think you can always learn and you can always grow and adapt to to what's happening currently. It's up to you and your choice if you want to continue learning about what's going on and what is culturally relevant or how has society changed through the years and how has technology changed through the years. It's completely up to you because right now we live in a time where where all the information is literally at your fingertips. Mm. Well, if I'm a millennial who's 39, I'm right on the cusp of, you know, dumping out of any demographic, which anybody wants to pay attention to in order to protect my ability to, to stay relevant. Is it that I need to dive in and and know the, the memes and, and manners of Gen Z? Because I kind of think that that always is very cringy. Is there a way that to be authentic in your age and, and have it work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know that there is like so much new Gen Z lingo. And if I were to say it out loud, I would be laughed at 
immediately. Right. <laughs> I mean, and that's almost the point of it, isn't it? it yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like you can be authentic to your age and also understand, mm, hey, this okay. is where the conversation is going or, you know, this is what this means, but you don't have to, you know, adapt it to your daily vocabulary to try to be like that Steve Buscemi meme, like, how do you do fellow youths? Right, right, (laughs) Um, right. And I think there is a way to maintain your, your personal authenticity, but also understand like, hey, this is where the conversation is going right now. And this is how Uh. technology is going right now, or this is how social media is going right now. I think age is not a limit to being adaptable. And not a limit to learning either. Well, perfect segue, social platforms, because they're always evolving. How do you know, given where you're positioned in work and life, how do you know which platforms are going to pop? Do you have a user threshold that you think about? How do you, how do you assess if this is something you need to pay more attention to? It's interesting because I honestly don't have any like radar for that. I would just say that when there is a new social platform that's out, I do always make an effort to download it and to explore it and see if it does match with what's going on currently Hmm. in current, just like in our culture. And I think the reason why, for example, TikTok took off from a lip syncing music app for for kids, there were a lot of things happening. I think Meta, Instagram, and Facebook, they were already sort of reaching this area where people were getting so fed up with the inauthenticity and the vanity metrics of like, how many followers do I have? And how many likes? And is this the perfect photo or the perfect, putting my perfect self forward all the time? And I think that really came up with with a lot of, at least in the U.S., a lot of current events and politics, Mm. especially from 2016 on. Right. Because there was so much distrust towards Facebook and Instagram due to Cambridge Analytica and all the congressional hearings. And I think people were just already getting tired of it and were already feeling used and frustrated. And then the pandemic hit in 2020 and there was a lockdown and there was even more inequity and upheavals. And I think that is why there has been, you're seeing this rejection of being perfect and rejection of hustle culture, because I think Instagram and Facebook really perpetuated that for a long time. And TikTok became this quote unquote, breath of fresh air, especially powered by Gen Z, because they were just putting all of their flaws out there and not being afraid to, you know, showcase, for example, mental health issues or showcase social justice issues and be really bold. So I think that became, I think that's why TikTok became the platform that it is, because it, it really shows that it's okay to show your flaws. It's okay to be human and to be vulnerable. I am curious about Clubhouse. Clubhouse had a massive number of downloads and then it fizzled out. How do you feel about social audio? Presumably you jumped on Clubhouse, checked it out. What did you think? You know, I thought it was really interesting. I I will admit I never got fully 
into it because, and I think personally, I was into the podcasting world and I Mm -hmm. felt like Clubhouse was sort of born out of the I, the enthusiasm around podcasting. Mm -hmm. And I did think like, you know, this actually is very clubhouse is very cool because then anyone can basically host a live podcast and have live audience feedback. And I think clubhouse really saw its peak during the pandemic too, because we weren't allowed to gather. And I think that was a way of feeling connected with your community. So now that things are opening back up and there is this rush to go to concerts and live events. I think that's why Clubhouse may have saw its demise. And I think slowly too, it was just part of the bubble, not to get meta right now, the bubble of podcasting as well sort of popped. And I think more and more people are just like, I want to just go out into the world. And I think that's why there's been that shift away from audio because it is a very solitary and individual activity. That's interesting. I thought that content discovery was an issue for Clubhouse because it was live as it happens. Whereas with a podcast, you can go dig it up later. I think audio is layerable in terms of attention. So you can listen while you're working out. You can listen while you're eating lunch. It it doesn't demand as much focus, sort of a secondary thing, but that makes it less social. So you're right in terms of the solitary nature of it. Good, good points. If there's one thing that a, a marketer should think about when thinking about engaging and working with young creatives, what is that thing? Let them have their voice and don't be afraid to collaborate with them as well, because you might be surprised at how creative young creators can be. And I say this because I feel like my entire career has been around advocating for young creators. When I first started out, I started this filmmaking platform uh, where we empowered high school and college age filmmakers, students to create films that teach and things like, you know, define the word ostentatious, but make it into a narrative. And some of the content that we got from these young creators literally blew me away. It was like better than actual professional filmmakers because they're so passionate. So I do feel like young creators have so much creativity. They're just not given the benefit of the doubt due to their age or Or there's, you know, that mindset of, oh, you don't have enough life experience. And I think all of those things can be learned. The life experience of like politics in the workplace and like corporate politics and things like that. But creativity is, it comes from so much play and being unconstrained, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why young creators are so creative and you see so many great things come from TikTok or YouTube because they're not constrained by anything really. And when, and their feedback is live, if something flops, it will flop in real time. And they're just like, okay, that doesn't work. That doesn't resonate with my audience. What can I do next? Oh, I see. So they're getting that, that audience feedback, the thumbs up, the thumbs down, it's happening in real time. So even though they don't know limits in terms of creative limits, the way, oh, I can't do that. They aren't 
burdened with that. But the audience will say, oh, don't do that. Right. Exactly. Like, um, this is not it. <laughs> and this is not still, working. Well, and yeah. what's nice is actually to, to wrap it up with a bow, a lot of what you're saying about working and creative thought actually resonates with what you said about management in general you know, listening, empathetic, giving space and room for people to bring these things forward that actually it it will benefit creatively, but perhaps also just, it doesn't matter what the work is. Yeah. And I think, you know, recently I've been seeing so many LinkedIn articles and Harvard Business Review articles about the power of empathy in the workplace. And I feel like we're seeing it so many times that the word empathy has lost its meaning. But I do want to remind folks that empathy is also, it takes practice and it takes time. It's not going to be like, okay, I'm going to put empathy in my manager bucket or, you know, and have that be something I do. I think, you know, it does take a great deal of emotional labor at times, listening and being empathetic and supportive. But I think you'd be surprised how how grateful that whoever you're managing will be towards you and how much better their work will become and their creativity will become because they feel supported and they're not creating from a place of fear or from a place of lack. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts around all of these things with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. We reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Nolton, the voice artist who quoted our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.